0: It's meeting on Saturday night. We're so glad that you're here, Turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, 1 Corinthians, and you can find that if you don't have a a Bible, you might be able to find a Bible in front of you, and in that particular Bible, you should be able to find this passage on 952, 952, it'll also be projected up on the wall in just a moment. And um, before we get started, I just want to say a big thanks to a lot of people, because um, I'm so grateful that you're here, but I'm also especially grateful for those who are serving us tonight um, back in the nursery uh, with Children's Church and on the worship team because uh, just a couple of days ago we were looking at all the possibilities and we kind of asked everyone to be on notice and how it could go uh, with Saturday at 5 o'clock, it could go with Sunday at 5 o'clock, it could be back at Sunday morning, we didn't know, and um, and these people were kind enough to say, hey, we're in and uh, we're going to serve whatever the situation and so I just want to say I'm really grateful for our worship team. I'm always grateful for them, but especially this week, their flexibility. So thank you for that. Um, and so just want to say that. So there's a woman named Alice who had this desire to have a parrot. She thought it would really be fun to have a parrot that would talk and that she would have that in her home. And on Monday, Alice bought this parrot, but it didn't talk. And so the next day she returned to the pet store and... Uh, she was told he needs a ladder, and so she bought the ladder. And and then another day passed, and the parrot still didn't say a word. And so how about a swing, um, the clerk suggested. And so Alice bought a swing, and the next day she bought a mirror, and the next day she bought a miniature plastic tree, and the next day a shiny parrot toy. And on Sunday morning, Alice was standing outside the pet store when it opened, And she had the parrot cage in her hand and tears in her eyes because the parrot was dead. Did it ever say a word, the store owner asked her? Yes, Alice Alice said through sobs. Right before he died, he looked at me and said, don't they sell any food at that pet store? (laughs) Now, if this story were true... (laughs) You can imagine what a fool, Alice, uh, would have felt like, spending all this time and energy um, and only have it end in utter and complete failure. Have you ever felt like a fool? I mean, all of us have felt like a fool in some way, uh, shape, or order in some different situation. We've just felt like, oh, what a fool I have been. But tonight I want to ask you this question. Have you ever felt like a, a fool with respect to what you believe? Um, If you're a Christian, have you ever felt like a fool for your faith? If you're not a Christian, have you ever looked at others who claim to be Christians, who are following Jesus and thought to yourself, what fools they are for giving themselves to this, giving their time, their energy, even some of their money uh, to, to the cause of Christ. Why would anyone do such a thing? Have you ever thought about that? Um, maybe they're just missing out on all that life really has to, has to offer because of their, their faith and their following Christ. Well, in today's passage, we're going to consider the foolishness of faith. Okay? So let's take a look at it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, starting in verse 18, we're going to read all the way through to verse 31. So listen to God's Word. Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word. Now, before we continue, let's pause and let's pray. As we bow our heads, let me invite you to pray. And if you would. Pray for yourself and for those who are seated around you. And if I may, may also ask you to please pray for me. Lord Jesus, uh, we just sang about this glorious message. and, um, And we just read about this message that To some is folly and to others is power. And, Father, we ask that you would give us your insight to see your truth and seeing your truth to embrace it and to live by it. So, Holy Spirit, would you come in this time and open our eyes and our hearts to your truth? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we consider uh, the truth that is in this passage, I want to highlight for us three things. And so the first one um, right off the bat is this one, and that is I want you to see the great contrast uh, the great contrast that is in here. you know in our house on occasion um, when maybe we're out in the driveway and some me and some of the kids are, are shooting some basketball and and uh, it's approaching dinner time, one of the things that we occasionally will experience is you know that wonderful experience, particularly when it's cold, I don't know something about that of opening the door and coming into the house, and then you've been told it's time to eat. And so you come in, and you have this wonderful fragrance that greets you as you open the door of this food that's been prepared. You're just like, oh, that smells so good, I can't wait to sit down and eat that. And one of those smells for me is when roasted vegetables have been in the oven. For us, that could be potatoes, it could be carrots. This is where you're probably going to differ with me, but one of the aromas that comes from the roasted vegetables is roasted Brussels sprouts. Now, some of you, and, and, and one of the things that's so glorious about it is that there's lots of olive oil that's been kind of, it's been soaking in. There's some salt, and I'm going to put more salt on it, of course, when we eat. But it's just that it's the smell of Brussels sprouts. And, and for some of you, when you think the smell of roasted Brussels sprouts, the first thing you kind of go is, ooh, I don't want to smell that at all. But some of you, perhaps like me, and you kind of go, yes, I can't wait to consume some of these roasted Brussels sprouts. What's interesting is it's it's the one same smell, but you had this contrasting response. And even in our family, we have a contrasting response to the fragrance of roasted Brussels sprouts. But in this passage, what we have is a clear contrast. And again, it's a contrast in response. Uh, What is that response we're talking about? In verse 18, we're introduced to this contrast for we're told for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the two contrasting responses are it's folly. This is foolishness. Or the other response is this is the power of God. This is what gives my life meaning and significance. And the two different parties are in verse 18. It is those who are perishing and those who are being saved. I find it interesting that it's a present tense thing. In other words, there are some who are in the trajectory of heading toward eternal death and those who are heading toward eternal life. And already there's a contrast in response to this message. And that message is what? It's the message of the cross very specifically. And so that's what we see in the contrast here. And so what we see is that there's a foolishness or a power of God that is on display. Now, one more thing. Look at the, look at verse 22. And we continue to see in the text because we get a little more insight into that particular context. Verse 22, we're told, For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what that is saying, and by the way, it introduces a couple different responses. It's about Jews and it talks Greeks or Gentiles, which by the way are the same, and that is people who are simply not Jews. And what is the stumbling block for Jews? Well, it's real simple. You may know this, and, uh, but Jesus Christ, the name or the term Christ is not his last name, but is the term of his title. And the word Christ actually means Messiah or anointed one. And what that, that term is loaded. And for the Jew, that simply meant that we are looking to that time when God is going to bring about His chosen one, His Messiah. And the Messiah is promised in the Old Testament and that Messiah is going to be one who was like David. What was David like? David was the conquering king who rescued Israel from all of their enemies and brought peace and rest. And so they knew that one day God was going to send another one, David. But they assumed that that Messiah was going to be a conquering king. And so the very fact that you would speak of Christ crucified, that's like saying Messiah King put to death. And that is a paradox. It doesn't make any sense. It is a contradiction in terms to the Jewish mind who is anticipating that Messiah. So the very notion of that would have been a stumbling block. If you think about it, it actually says in the Old Testament that uh, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree in the book of Deuteronomy. And so... Every kind of concept where you're saying Christ crucified, Messiah crucified, hanging on a cross, that would have been a contradiction to them to think. That just doesn't make sense. In fact, if there's anyone who would have objected to that the most, it would have been the author of this letter. It would have been Saul, formerly the Pharisee, because we know in his former life, he sought people who were proclaiming this because to him it was not only illogical not only a stumbling block but it was scandalous it was offensive it was an insult to god to suggest that this jesus who died on a wooden cross would actually be considered to be god's messiah so therefore we have that this message he's saying is a stumbling block second type of objection um that references is this whole idea of greeks or gentiles non-jews and for them particularly the greeks they're all about philosophy, wisdom, logic, putting that all together. And for them, they're simply saying, well, this isn't logical. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't measure up to the standards of the philosophy that we've come to know and the wisdom that we've come to glean through those who have taught. Listen to how, um, Scott Sauls, who's a, a pastor in Nashville, writes about the message of the cross that we Christians believe. He says, we Christians believe that the hope of the universe Rest on the shoulders of Jesus, a first century Middle Eastern man who was conceived by a teenage virgin, born in an obscure and overlooked town, hung out with people who were not religious and who were, for the most part, unimpressive. He spent much of his adult life with no place to lay his head and he died between two crooks on top of a trash heap. Admittedly, these details about Jesus' life don't exactly scream, hope of the universe, or, answer to all the world's problems and woes. In other words, what he's trying to help us realize is that, have you stopped and thought how ridiculous the message of the gospel sounds? And yet, and yet, as foolish as it sounds, for those who are being called, and note, Paul says both Jews and Greeks, in other words, those who formerly had this stumbling block and those for whom this seemed utter foolishness, God has broken through and called them to himself those whom he has called and those who have seen this truth. What is it that they say? They said that this is power and this is wisdom. In other words, the Jew would have said this is utter foolish because a crucified Messiah is the picture of weakness and the Messiah is supposed to be a picture of strength. And yet for those who've been called, they said, no, this is power. There's power in the cross and the message of what God has done. And for those who said this is utter foolishness, they see that this is complete and, and, and amazed, amazing wisdom. And so for those who are being called, they see that it is actually power and wisdom. In fact, the responses that people have here listed in this section are also true today. How do we see this? I'll tell you, There's three responses that people have to the cross, to the message of the cross. One is that they stumble. Another one is that they laugh. And another one is that they tremble. All right, let's think about that for just a second. The first one is that they stumble. Your worldview simply will not accept a crucified king. You crave power in your life. You want to be powerful, uh, whether that's through money or position or status. And you're sure that following Jesus, if you really get serious about it, is only going to make you weak. And so since you aspire to have status and money and influence, you're sure that following Jesus is merely going to, only going to inhibit all of your dreams, all of your potential. And so therefore, Christianity, the message of the cross, the gospel itself is a stumble. It causes you to stumble. Now, another response is it causes it might cause you to laugh. OK. You might say, you know, the Bible, Christianity, it's just too simple. And what you really crave, what you really want is respect. You want people to respect you as a as a thinking person, as a person who, you know, is educated, is, is an intellectual person. You want people to admire you, your, your clout. And you're thinking to yourself, maybe if my friends or my coworkers, my teammates, if they knew, um, they would laugh at me. And so what do you do? You keep it quiet. You keep it to yourself. You don't let anybody know. That you kind of think about these things. But then there's a third response. And that is the response not to stumble at the cross, not to laugh at the cross, but to tremble at the cross. You're amazed. You're amazed that God would humble himself to such a lowly state that though He's in, that though innocent Jesus um, would choose to suffer and to die for you and it causes you to tremble. Like, you're amazed and that's a different response than to stumble or to laugh. And you know what? Our response to this message of the cross will cause us, it will shape how we actually live. Um, what your life looks like Monday through Saturday, what your life looks like every day in all ways. Um, it'll shape, for example, how you view or consider a career, a vocation. You know, do you, do you view it, um, you know, Merely for yourself or do you do you view it as a, as an opportunity for the kingdom and so as you view if you think about career you think, okay my career is for me to advance um, and acquire uh, that's what it's all about for me to advance in life and to acquire things or do you view your career think about this do you view your career as an opportunity to put Jesus on display? Maybe your career is God has pushed has has placed you sovereignly placed you where you are to do what you're doing so that you can put Jesus on display. doesn't matter if you're a professor or a banker or an engineer or you're in business or you're a teacher or whatever it is that you do, if you're in medicine, in any career, are you called there to simply advance and acquire for yourself or are you called to put Jesus on display? And the difference is, how you respond to the message of the cross, because it radically changes how we look at those things. Or what about school or study? Some of you are students. I know I was a student and I thought to myself, I just need to get through this. This is just kind of the next step in the journey of life. And, um, and at some point, God sort of broke through and made me appreciate the fact that, you know what? I'm not merely trying to get by or figure out how to get a decent grade or go to the next step, but this is an opportunity that God has given me. So do we view school or study as a necessary means to an end or as an opportunity to better understand the world that God has made and has created and has and to more effectively serve him in it? In other words, he tells believers that we are to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind and our strength. And, and and so we're going to view it differently if we stumble laugh or tremble at the message of the cross and then third and last example i give you is whether you whether you stumble or laugh or tremble at the cross is going to impact the way you view your possessions and your money it is it's going to completely change the way you see it if if you stumble at the cross if you laugh at the cross then possessions possessions and money are yours and they are yours to increase and to acquire and to increase your pleasure and your power. That's what they're there for. But if you tremble at the message of the cross, then your possessions and your money have been entrusted to you. They all belong to God, and you see them as resources that He's entrusted to you, every every bit of it, and that you want to manage them and steward them in such a way that you can maximize the kingdom of God impact in your life and through your life. And so the way we look at the message of the cross is going to have a real influence and impact on the way we view our career, our studies, our possession, our money, and so many other things as well. That's number one, is the great contrast I want you to see. Number two, the second thing I want you to see from this passage is not only the great contrast, but the grand reversal. I remember when I was in high school and I spent a lot of time in high schools um, when after graduating uh, from college, I was on staff with Young Life and I spent uh, many hours for many years in high schools. And it was very clear after a while what things would lead people to be in higher or lower positions. It seems like in the social pecking order of high school um, for, for me, where I went to high school, the thing that that caused people to rise to the top was football and cheerleading. Um, Those two things particularly were really big then. Um, They didn't continue to be really big in other places where I would serve, but Shelby is Shelby, and uh, Shelby is incredibly successful in football, and uh, apparently being affiliated with football as a cheerleader was also something that would take you to the top socially. But I remember, maybe you've had this experience too, some of us who are a little bit older, I remember going back to my high school reunion. Remember my 10th high school reunion. And I remember going back to my 25th high school reunion. And I remember that it seems like something had changed in the 10 and then 25 years since I was in high school. Some of you know this, you saw this. In fact, there have been studies that have been done that, that actually show that the things that cause a person to be popular or successful in high school actually will not serve them well as an adult. And conversely, some of those things that don't serve somebody well as a high school student um, can serve them very well as an adult. In other words, what we experienced at the reunion was something of a reversal. <laughs> a reversal had taken place. And, and what I want you to see is that that kind of thing is, is alluded to here as well. Um, look at verse 20. In verse 20, it tells us, it says, "...where is the one who is wise?" Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through, get this, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What's fascinating is that you can see that what God is doing is He's inverting things. He's actually taking something that is perceived to be foolish to actually lead those who would be perceived to be wise to a place of folly and then take those who would be perceived to be foolish to be a place of wisdom. There's a reversal that's taking place in God's economy. In the end, God uh, demonstrates his supremacy. And then we see again, as it's alluded to in verses 26 through 29, he says, for consider your calling. In other words, Hey, for exhibit A, I need go no further than you. Church at Corinth, he says, for considering your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might Boast in the presence of God. Oh, listen up to the wisdom that is here. Don't be fooled by this world, this passage is reminding us. Don't give in to what seems to be promising you success when in reality that very thing might prove to be your doom eternally. Do you hear the wisdom calling out to you even in this passage? There is a great new, uh, Sunday seminar that's being taught by Brian Augustine. Just began last Sunday. Unfortunately, will not continue tomorrow, but will continue next Sunday. And it's Into the Shadowlands, kind of part two, which is a look at some of the writings and teachings of C.S. Lewis. And for what it's worth, it's hard to pick. But if I had to pick my favorite book by C.S. Lewis, I would pick The Great Divorce. It's one of his shorter books. Um, and it is a fantasy, meaning it's, um, imaginative, and the whole idea of the title has nothing to do with marriage, except that it's a response to a um, a title that was written by a man named William Blake that was called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And he says, while it's not a response to that book, it's a response, something to the title, the concept. And so he says the great divorce, by which he means heaven and hell have nothing to do with each other. Or to use the terms of verse 18, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And it's an imaginative story in which he, C.S. Lewis, finds himself as the, the main character. And he's the narrator of the story. And he's on this fantastical bus ride that he learns later is on its way to the outskirts of heaven. And it's occupied, this bus, by people who have come from hell. And while it doesn't work this way, in his imagination he has these people who have come from hell to check out heaven have one-on-one interactions as they encounter people who have come from heaven. And so in this one encounter, C.S. Lewis, the narrator, is accompanied by his mentor who is his guide in this journey. And his mentor is the very real person, George MacDonald, who was a literary mentor for C.S. Lewis. And so he's constantly asking him questions as he observes these interactions, these conversations. And on one occasion he beholds a woman who is in heaven, And she seems to be somebody very powerful um, and 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 very majestic, almost like uh, she must be the queen or something. And now she's in heaven and here she is. And so I'm going to pick it up here. And here's what here's what he says. He's speaking to his mentor here and he's asking. He's inquiring. He says, is it is it speaking of her? He said, I whispered to my God. Not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. You see the contrast. And, and who are these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. Haven't you read your Milton? A thousand angels serve her. And who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son. Even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on her on their own parents? No, there are those that steal other people's children. But her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. What he's saying is that no one would have ever heard of Sarah Smith. No one would have noticed her. She, she wasn't written about in any book. Uh, she wasn't on any TV you know, show or anything like that, but yet in heaven, she is described as one of the great ones. And so it is still today because there are people today who we all know about, but in a hundred years, they will be so insignificant that no one will even regard them whatsoever. And there are people today, maybe some of whom you do know, who in heaven will be considered to be among the great ones. Because there's the great reversal. those who place their hope, those who respond with trembling to the message of the cross, are those whose lives are changed and whose greatness is measured not by this world but by heaven. And so we see the grand reversal. You know, I, I have a friend um, who, like me, served on staff with young life. He grew up in Columbus, Georgia. His dad was the banker. Uh, he was one of the, the most notorious and successful bankers in Columbus, Georgia. And he, that is my friend Bart Scarborough, um, had come to know Jesus through the ministry of Young Life. And, and not only that, but he decided that he would serve Jesus the rest of his days. And so he threw his lot entirely in with the kingdom. Now... As some of his friends discovered uh, that he was going to work with Young Life, they were a little perplexed. In fact, they knew that Bart, had he chosen to, could have simply followed in his dad's footsteps and gone right into a successful and lengthy career in banking. And so they said to him, Bart, what are you thinking? Don't you know that if you do this, you're going to be poor? And Bart said, Yeah, but only for about 60 years. And I've always loved that response because what he understood was that there is something far, far greater than 60 years of successful business in this world. And so he has continued to give himself and he's still doing it to this day and that 20, 30 years ago. And he is he will reap a reward, I'm sure, for giving himself to what truly matters. The great reversal. Jesus put it this way. In Luke 14, 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So my question for you is, are we exalting ourselves or are we humbling ourselves before the majesty and the power and the wisdom of the message of the cross? So that brings me to my third and last. I want you to see great contrast. And the grand reversal. But finally, I want you to see the foolishness of God. The foolishness of God. What a strange phrase that is. In verse 25, we read it. Look again with me in verse 25. for Here's what it says. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, is this just simply a cute and clever play on words? What exactly is Paul trying to tell us? The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is this foolishness of God? What is this weakness of God? I believe it's simply this, and that it is pointing to the ultimate moment in human history. It's pointing to the cross itself. It's pointing to the fact that in love, God dies for his creatures who are his enemies to win them back. And and that seems like utter foolishness. And in some respects, it is. It is. Why would a God who is holy and good and just die for his rebellious creatures? It's utter foolishness foolishness. And yet that's the nature of who God is. And his foolishness is stronger than the wisdom of men. And then what about the weakness? I mean, why would God, who is almighty, who who ushers creation into existence with but a word, become weak? It's what we celebrate at Christmas. You know, we celebrate that that God would take on human flesh or as Paul will put it in his letter to the Philippians of Jesus, he said that though he was one with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But rather, he emptied himself and he took on the nature of a servant. He became obedient and even unto death, death on a cross. You see, he became weak. So weak that he was vulnerable. And that he would be taken and nailed to a cross and put to death in a shameful way. And yet the weakness of God actually demonstrates the power of God because it was that weakness that overcame sin and death and brought about eternal life, conquering his enemies and changing them into friends, delivering them from a place of death and to a place of life. And so then it concludes, In this passage at the very end in verses thirty and thirty-one it says this, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us. In other words, Christ is wisdom. He became to us Christ did as as wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So as I close, let me just ask a couple questions. One is this, what's your boast? Now, you might say to yourself, hey, I I don't, I don't brag. I'm not a bragging type. I don't mean that. I don't believe that's what this means. I think what it means is, in what are you trusting? In what is your hope? In what are you relying? Like, when you think to yourself, this is who I'm telling people who I am. Is it, I'm related to this person. Uh, I, I have this career. Um, I'm, I'm really competent in this particular way. What's your starter? What defines you? That's what I believe he's getting at here. What is your boast? Is it in your attractiveness? Is it in being physically attractive or your, your desire to, to be attractive to others? Is it, is it in your possession of money or power or your retirement that you've got? Is it in your reputation or your status in some way? Is it in your career? Or maybe it's in your family. What, what's your boast? He says here, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And, and I'll close with this because I believe this is a great place to go and perhaps where Paul initially got these ideas and then brought them to the place of Christ. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, such a great uh, set of verses here, we read this. It says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man... Boast in the message of the cross. Those who are being saved. Those who are called out. You know, Alice who had the parrot (laughs) um, may have thought herself to be an utter fool. Maybe you've thought with respect to your own faith, what a fool I've been. Maybe you've thought that to others. But those who are thought to be fools for Christ will be shown in the end to be the wisest ones of all in the grand reversal. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that there are many of us, myself included, who have bought into the lies of this world that says, this is where life is found. This is where status can be obtained. This is where security lies, um, in your account or in your status. Oh, Father, all those things are wood, hay, and stubble and will be burnt up. Lord, give us wisdom. And may it have practical outworking as we make choices with respect to our, our lives, with our careers, with our money, with our relationships, with our studies. That all those things would not be simply things that we would use to acquire more for ourselves, but rather that we would put our lot entirely with you. Jesus, you said when you taught, you said that there was a man who came upon a treasure in a field And in his joy, he went and sold everything that he had. Everything that he had. And he bought that field. And that the kingdom of heaven is like that. Oh, Father, give us wisdom to be foolish like that. And in actuality, to be wise. So, Father, we ask that you would guide us and lead us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.